Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present, and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. This is episode five of season one of Blackademia, and joining me today is Professor Dennis McDermott. Professor McDermott is the inaugural Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous at La Trobe University, Prior to joining La Trobe, he held the position of Director of Flinders University's two post-centres for Indigenous Health and Wellbeing, Adelaide and Northern Territory. Dennis is a psychologist, academic and poet. A Koori man, his mother's family are from Gadigal land, which you're more likely to know now as Inner Sydney, with connections to Gomorrah country. Dennis's teaching and research interests encompass early childhood, social determinants of Indigenous health, racism, incarceration, policy, equity, Indigenous social, spiritual and emotional well-being, workforce development, Indigenous health pedagogy and the nexus of culture and context in service delivery. In 2014, he was awarded a National Senior Teaching Fellowship by the then Australian Government's Office for Learning and Teaching. Yama Professor McDermott, thank you so much for joining us here on Blackademia. Thank you for asking me. It's great. So your official bio is really impressive, but before we get into that, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself in terms of who your mob is and if you could tell me if you've got um, carers' responsibilities or community responsibilities or a little bit about that side of your life. Sure, sure. Look, um, I was born in Tamworth, which is Gomoroi or Gomoroi country, as you're yep. quite aware. <laughs> uh, my mum is actually from Gadigal country, so it's a little suburb called Darlington she grew up in, which is between Redfern and Newtown in inner Sydney, Gadigal country. Uh, these days, mostly swallowed up by Sydney University. <laughs> so I was born in Tamworth. Um, I guess um, my father's side of the family is Irish, hence the, hence the McDermott. So uh, I got back to Ireland for the first time a couple of years ago and reconnected with that side of my family as well. Wow. Uh, I've got two daughters, partner and two daughters. One is 33 and I started again. I got a 12 year old. Wow. So, uh, they're both going great. Um, so yes, the responsibilities, I was late for work this morning because my daughter was a little bit ill. Oh dear. I was taken over now and here I, here I am at work. So, oh. yeah. Well, I hope um, she's better soon. Yes, she's fine. She's fine. Her mother said the hot chips really helped. <laughs> hot chips uh, for lunch and burger. Yes, I relate to that. Mm. So I guess in terms of community responsibilities, it's a bit different because I've been living in Adelaide for the last 10 years and going to country uh, at Flinders University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm now here in Melbourne at La Trobe University just since February. And so I'm really learning about Melbourne. I'm Wurundjeri country here. But La Trobe is in a good position where it's got um, campuses on about four other nations' country. Mm. So I can get that in, I get up to Bendigo, Albury, Wodonga, Mildura, as well as Melbourne. So a lot to learn, Amy, but it's it's great. It's really great to sort of, you know, discover these different mobs mm. and what's to offer here. 
That's fantastic. And did you, um, if you don't mind me asking, relocate or are you commuting down for the role? No, I relocated. My partner and I, she's my partner's an academic in a totally different field. And we had 10 years in Adelaide and it was time to do something else. And although I'm a, uh, a bloke from country music capital, I miss the big, big city. Melbourne mm. um, was the next step for both of us. Yeah, exciting. Uh, so you're a psychologist, a poet, a professor, and now a pro vice chancellor. Are you able to tell me a little bit, and of course you're a father and a community member, can you tell us how you got started or how you've maintained such an awesomely diverse career journey? Look, I, won't, I can't say that it was planned that way, um, <laughs> but there are some turning points that are very interesting. I guess my first degree was actually in economics because ah. I had a, a scholarship through the Meyer organisation way back when, and they put me through an economics degree with the hope that I would stay with Meyer and become some kind of a executive. And after moving around a few different parts of the organisation, I realised that, no, it wasn't <laughs> for me. And I uh, went back to university and started my, other, my two loves, which were language English and psychology. And so they've intersected in and out for the rest of my career, I guess. I, I trained as a psychologist in Armidale, UNE, and in Brisbane. And uh, practiced as a psychologist for quite a while in health, in community health, in drug and alcohol, in psychotherapy. Mm. Got a lot out of it. Mm. But I turned my back on a university career early on because I thought it was too slow. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was too slow in between, you know, uh, put all this work in and maybe five years down the track you get a couple of articles and, you know, mm. some research published. Mm. And I was impatient. Um, but I've come back to university in the last 20 odd years and found my feet. Um, firstly, in terms of medical education, because mm -hmm. there's so few of the were at the time, so few Aboriginal doctors mm. and as a psychologist, yeah. I was asked to teach medical students about Aboriginal health and cultural safety. Mm. It, all, it all came from there, really. That's fantastic. I think um, it sounds like you were very um, quick to pick up on how slow that process of getting things published is. I was in the thick of it before I was like, oh, this is far from instant gratification. You've really got to wait. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, these yeah. are interesting aspects of the academic path. And, look, and I've found other ways to get that gratification, that response. You know, when you work at a, a say, a conference presentation, mm. you're getting immediate feedback from the people who think, yes, or even a good lecture that it's worked or a tutorial. Yeah. You know when you've actually, you know, hit pay dirt in the sense of connecting with connecting with people. Yeah. And that's part of the challenge of this job, I think, is to actually any academic and black academic role is to take stuff that's not easy for people to actually accept all the time and put it in a way that they actually can grasp it. Yes. Run with it. Yes. Yes. I think that's that's such an interesting thing when it comes to academia. I was speaking with my dad recently about my first conference presentation is coming up. It will have passed by the time this episode streams. And I explained to him what I was going to be talking about, which is the burden placed on Indigenous academics by non-Indigenous academics. And I gave him the figures to give him some understanding of the context. And I said, you know, we have 120,000 non-Indigenous staff members and the burden's being placed on around 400 Indigenous academics. 
And he said, do you think people are going to like hearing this? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, is it really that smart for you to upset 120,000 people for the benefit of 400? And I was like, well, if people before me hadn't been willing to upset them, I wouldn't have a job because I wouldn't have been allowed in. Um, but I think, you know, for, for my family who, you know, I'm first in my family to finish high school and they love that I'm an academic, um, but they, they do, they remind me sometimes of the those aspects that sometimes people aren't going to enjoy it. And, uh, and then when you present work in the academy, it's then another journey to then translate that into something consumable for our friends and our family and our community outside of the academy, which was a big part of what prompted me to want to start this podcast so that we could break down kind of what it looks like to be in these roles and these spaces and how it can be challenging, but in a good way. Uh, and you're also a poet. I love that. How do you maintain being a poet? Amongst well, everything else, it very well in the last little <laughs> while because the other the other aspects are so all consuming. Mm. But I've made a pledge with myself that in this new job, which is although it's a lot broader, it has its own challenges as a pro vice chancellor. It's taking me away from, in a good way, from a lot of uh, just solid research. Um, so it's going to give me once I get on top of it, if I ever do, uh, some more space to start writing again. But the two things aren't. The two things aren't uh, really disconnected. I, I found out a few years ago that someone, you know, when I was bogged down in minutiae of some particular work I was doing as an academic in health, that someone contacted me and said, thank you very much. Your title poem of my one published book of you know, poems, I use that to bookend my whole semester teaching about Aboriginal literature. Wow. But what they said was they take this poem called Dorothy's Skin, which is about my mother, but also about Udru and Uncle Kath Walker mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of other things. I take, she takes this poem and she introduces it at the beginning and says, now, I don't expect you to get across this poem. We're going to work towards unpacking this poem by the end of the semester. Oh. And so that was lovely to hear. That stuff that I hadn't thought about for ages is actually, that's the thing about you know, art in that in a good sense, art works away, finds its own kind of level or own kind of audience. Oh, that's beautiful. Work. That's so a the really... So aren't disparate, it's just they work in different ways. Yeah, that's a really lovely teaching practice as well. I feel really inspired by that story as someone who course convenes. I like that. I have um, some of Udru Nunakul's, um Kath Walker's poems on my yeah. corkboard at work in my office to remind me those lines, like when she says, pour your wine into the water and the water remains, but the wine's gone. And I, I think about that in terms of what's my purpose in the academy and what am I doing? And and you're right, that art can really translate it. I've got some academic friends who use art as self-care and I struggle to spend time on anything that I don't see um, as very productive and valuable. Uh, but I have always enjoyed poetry. So I love hearing about people who manage academic workloads and poetry because I think if I'm ever going to actually start taking care of my mental health in terms of self-care it'll probably be poetry very angry and sad poems <laughs> well well it's a way of actually unpacking that stuff to yourself as well mm. it helps you actually you know externalize it by actually putting it into a, such a succinct form you really have to work hard at it mm. but it has resonance I was asked to talk to read some of my poems only about two months ago here at La Trobe, we had people from different backgrounds reading their poetry and there was this lovely synergy of the different poems coming together 
and you can say things in poetry you can't say with prose or with text straight mm. text and when it's working well it touches people like music does in a different way that's beautiful i find it very humanizing that um when i see like on your your twitter bio for example you mentioned that you're a poet and for me it's very humanizing it reminds me that professors and people who hold these positions which sound very sturdy and rigid and you know that to yeah. me through my perspective and my lens which you know early on in life was completely informed by pop culture videos and movies of you know american colleges um i like that it reminds me of the human nature of of academics um but speaking I think that's that's part of who we are as black academics yes. as well you know we need to shake up the academy a little bit yeah so i am a professor but in my own way yes and i i don't profess to be the world's greatest researcher you know, i leave that to my partner she's a gun researcher <laughs> <laughs> but i am a reasonable communicator and mm. i'm a reasonable thinker and i can put things together hopefully that might affect a bit of change and that's where i see you know you work with your own skill set your own interests your own things you can do Mm. I did see at a, I was at a qualitative methodologies conference earlier this year and they were actually speaking about taking lines from participant data. So with conversations, for those of you not familiar with academia, data often just means conversations um, when it's qualitative, wait, quantitative, qualitative. I get those two confused sometimes. Um, and actually taking the lines and putting them together and then the presentation is a poem. And I thought, I, I don't know if that's how I would publish my work, but I like that the way in which knowledge is being disseminated and explored is being pushed further and further beyond the originally rigid confines in formal academic spaces. So I found that idea very interesting, the idea of turning data or participant story into mm -hmm. prose and poetry. Look, I think there's, I mean, there's a real reason for that. It's because, you know, there's a difficulty in getting challenging concepts and even experiences and, and data and facts across mm. to people. And the work, I think, some of the work that most interests me is how do you take something, wearing my, my old health hat on, uh, having worked for a long time in health and health education, how do you take things like Aboriginal health and the notions of cultural safety mm. and students, non-Aboriginal students, grasp it? Mm. Because it's challenging. It's, it's yeah. hard for them to look at the last 200 plus years of colonial Australia mm. and to, to swallow and to swallow that and to actually accept it and then still like themselves, still like their country. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a hard one. So a lot of my work in the last six years, but really for the last 20 years, has been thinking through how do you help students stay engaged mm. when it's so disruptive? And I realised wearing my psychologist hat, it's this thing we term cognitive dissonance, which is really very simple. Yeah. It says if a fresh idea comes in, that fresh idea challenges my accepted worldview, the way I just work, it's absolutely threatening to me. Mm. I'll push it away mm. until I can feel comfortable enough to accept it. Mm. And sometimes we need then both the, the, the data, the evidence that we've gathered as an academic, but we have to present it in a way that makes that evidence sing and get through that resistance and the person can feel comfortable enough to accept it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really beautifully articulated. Thank you, Professor. Um, 
Well, 2019 saw you appointed as the inaugural Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous at La Trobe University. Congratulations. Can you tell me what does it mean to be a Pro Vice Chancellor? Well, when I work it out, I'll know. <laughs> it's, it's a great opportunity because although I've been in health for a long time, now my purview is across the whole university. So I guess the three or four key elements of it would be to look at the way we recruit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students to boost the numbers coming in, mm. but also to make sure we retain those students to graduation because yeah. that's the real challenge. Yeah. You know? There's so many things that will drive them out the door no sense of belonging, microaggressions, not seeing themselves in the curriculum or staff, etc. So many things. So how do we make that a culturally safe environment for those students to keep them through to graduation? That's one element. I guess the second is around staff, making sure we bring up the numbers of Aboriginal staff. Mm. And again, make it safe for them to stay on yeah. and keep their careers happening. I, I guess looking at the curriculum, it's not just about changing the content to make sure we capture Aboriginal perspectives and increasingly Aboriginal knowledge in the, you know, the curriculum for all sorts of everything from law to midwifery to business. Mm. You know, how do we get that in there? Mm. But in a way, that thing I talked to you about, about it's our technical term in academia is pedagogy. How do you, mm. how do you teach this stuff in a way that keeps people in the room or on, online and not running, screaming away from what you're trying to do? Yeah. So that I sneeze. We started doing that here. We've, for example, we've run about seven four-hour cultural safety workshops in the last six months, including one with the senior executive group to help people grasp what it's all about. Because mm. cultural safety is not just for health. It says, how can you be self-reflexive in what you do? How can you look at yourself and what you bring to whatever you're doing, whether it's a clinical encounter, education, teaching, business, whatever? How can you know where you're coming from? And that's challenging. Yeah. So we're going to try and work from the bottom up to change the university. I joked to the vice chancellor, we're here to decolonise the university. <laughs> They're going to give the, the land back. But it's real, you know. We actually mm. think the only way that, on the other side, of course, is research. How can we make the research that we do, not just the quantity of it, but the quality of it, yeah. reflecting what Aboriginal Torres Strait people want to see in their communities and do it respectfully. So uh, on Monday of this week, I was at a meeting of a whole bunch of Deputy Vice Chancellors Indigenous and Pro Vice Chancellors Indigenous, meeting with the lot of IATSIS in Canberra, yep. Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, some people from research funding organisations, thinking, how can we get our ethics right? How can we make sure that the way we conduct research, because there's a new code coming, which will be mandatory, that says, folks, you've got to take it seriously. Mm. Don't insult the old token blackfellow. You start engaging with the community first you co-design what you're doing with the community and the community owns the data that's coming out of it so this is the kind of work we do to shift the focus more broadly yeah that's fantastic different things in there, but yeah that's kind of what i like about the role too it's, it's broad i like a, a big picture challenge but yeah, the first thing i guess about the role is is that as much as it's big picture and not so much highfalutin but high level in terms of you've got to work with uh, people in organisations and the hierarchy of the university, but it's also very personal. So this morning I sat down with a person who was an Aboriginal counsellor and we talked about how they, how we can shift his job description 
so that he can do the work with community and the way he wants to work with students and mob uh, and still be recognised in his academic role. So it's as personal as that, with students, with staff, with community members, as well as the big picture stuff. Mm. That's fantastic. I think um, the, the ethics is something I'm very interested in because we are the most researched people on earth and it's been said that we're being researched to death. Uh, but I think even with this podcast, when I went looking for an appropriate consent form for the guests, it was pretty quickly clear that one didn't exist, that there wasn't, when when people come together to produce something that's publicly available, the usually one person owns it. And, mm. and so um, I got some really great feedback from some black academics about what should consent look like and what should that participation look like. Mm. And then I, I had to actually go to a, an awesome Indigenous lawyer and say, can you help me build this because it doesn't exist? And I think that maybe that's something that people don't necessarily know outside of the academy is there's not very many of us in here and the stuff that we know community does want, there's not a template for how to deliver that. A lot of this stuff hasn't been created in these spaces and so that's a big part of the work that needs to be done is doing things like rolling out new ethics where it would be co-designed because actually the current ethical process for big studies is not that difficult to manipulate. I think I've seen it manipulated in, in, in different ways, um, uh, but really good if you use it appropriately, um, but it's not quite right. So yeah. this idea of a whole new ethics framework like that, I can't imagine how much work must have gone into that, how much consultation, and then also how much support is going to be needed because we're going to have non-Indigenous people going, well, how do we find and identify community members that are appropriate to consult with and to work out what they need to co-design? Like, this is exciting, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and most of the work has been done by the crew at IATSIS with we fellas you know, swanning in lately <laughs> to sort of say, oh, yes, that's a good, or what about this? Or, have you thought about that? You know, but it's, they've done all the, the grunt work. That's amazing. But you're right, it was pointed out by a non-Indigenous member of one of the big funding bodies, so mm. the ARC, the Australian Research mm -hmm. Council, was there at the meeting, and the NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, was there. And someone asked, well, this is great. We, we now hear from you lot why you want to go down this, this, this small matter of data sovereignty, who owns the data, yes. or how you go about co-design, as you're pointing out quite rightly. There's a thousand and one questions like this. What we realise, as we realise with our teaching, is you have to help people get the rationale for why this is important. Yeah. It's not enough to say it's important. Yeah. They often just don't understand why you want to do it differently. Yeah. So unpacking the rationale for it, giving them case studies or examples mm. of why it works differently when you do it differently, why you get why it's more effective yeah. when you do it differently is in, is not just important, it's crucial. It's yeah. crucial. Yeah, we're very clear about your own rationale yeah. and then finding a way to help people grasp it. Yeah, I've certainly found that in the education space that a big part of what I do in the courses that I teach, so I get pre-service teachers pretty close to graduation and we tried just telling them these are things that you should know and things that you should do, but actually we realised we had to kind of treat them like a garden and help them uproot and get rid Ooh. of certain ideas that had been planted really early on in their lives and and fed by media and, and political policy and all these things. You've got to help them unpack 
before you can give them the new information and that's really time consuming uh, and so it's a weird balance trying to get I know for, for us in our course we find that a really interesting balance because we really just want to teach them about all the awesome resources and all the awesome indigenous led research and and studies and these are really fun things but it, they won't they don't hear it properly if we haven't explained why it matters or they they fall into the trap of well why don't white children get this or why should Aboriginal children even matter more than or, or why should they have these things and, and you're going oh well they don't understand the history they don't understand the legislative policy background here um, and the structural issues and I think that's part of what makes our job so wonderful from my perspective is we get to help people hopefully go out and be even better teachers or whatever field they're in um but it's work. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. Like, like, you know, Chelsea Bond. Oh, she's amazing. Emotional labour. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be quite exhausting. You need, you talked about self-care, you need some ways to keep yourself going, to have that support, to have that downtime, whatever it takes to actually keep going. Because it, it is, it can be, it can be exhausting. Mm, yeah. Um, but look, you're right. If, if, if what helps me is to understand but this is what I deal with every time I walk into a lecture theatre, a conference, or a tutorial, is the fact that there's going to be a range of people there who are in different points on the curve mm. in terms of their readiness to engage. Yeah. And some we know from our experience in Australia, that our colleagues in Canada have found exactly the same curve. Mm. And it's like people will have an emotional response to the bare facts or the data we're trying to, or the history we're trying to help them engage with. They'll have an emotional response. And some it's positive. They'll get it straight away. Yeah. When I go out there and join, you know, lead the, lead the work. <laughs> a second group, they're moved by, you know, what they hear about the country they grew up in, which they weren't quite aware of, but they're not, don't feel blamed. The third group are completely thrown. Mm. Lummoxed. It's new information. I didn't take the children away. Why are you blaming me? No yeah. one's blaming you. No. <laughs> this is a fact of our shared history. Yeah. But they need help because otherwise they just want to shoot the messenger. Yeah. Go ahead and complain. Yeah. The footprint, unfortunately, is pretty small. Hardest, if not really difficult or impossible to change. Maybe five or ten percent are completely hostile. Yeah. From the start. Yeah. So what we do is we now realise these. You know, this is a very rough description, but these four groups, if you like, roughly exist out there. Mm. We have to tailor our pedagogy, tailor our approach, our teaching, to meet those different emotional responses. And what we've found is that you know, colleagues in Canada find exactly the same thing. You have to build a relationship. Build a relationship, help them deal with that disquiet of a challenge. You know, there's a colleague in, in the University of Manitoba, Dr. Barry Lavalle, and we're asking students to self-reflect. He said, when your belly hurts, that's the process of self-reflection. Mm. We're asking students to do that, you know, yeah. so... How can we help them? How can we help them to engage with this stuff and stay engaged, not run screaming from the room? Yeah. And usually they do. If you, if you can win the trust enough uh, and if they stay connected enough, they pass through that to the other side. And when they successfully get to the other side, they, th they say things like, God, I'm going to bring up my children differently. Or, yeah. You know, they are really quite moved if mm. they can go through that difficult initial period. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Um, I, I find the final assessment task, marking that 
can be really good in helping me feel happier again in terms of you're seeing that journey. Oh, that's fabulous. Bearing some fruit. And um, because I have young children myself, I'm always aware that, you know, this this person who's about to, you know, on the cusp of being a teacher could be my child's teacher, could be my nephew's teacher. And I think knowing that some of them are going out there with such beautiful energy and um, a new awakening is really great. But I do think it's funny how often we hear research and teaching in academic spaces spoken of as objective and unemotional. And it's there's so much emotion in so much of what we do that it's it's just, I find that very funny. Look, look I agree. And I think we can't, I don't want to shirk that emotion because no. it's real. Yeah. And it, it's going to happen anyway. People mm-hmm. do have these emotional responses. You know, we, uh, at Kerr, I talked to you about our colleagues in British Columbia put uh, so far of the health professionals in this, the province of British Columbia, they put 30,000 of them through very sophisticated online cultural safety training. And they found exactly that same curve. Wow. So it's, it's very real. Um, I was going to say there was some brilliant, <laughs> brilliant observation. <laughs> yeah, I'll come back. Yeah. Um, I, know it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. I think it's about the emotion, about the yeah. emotional side. You know, they found they have to support their facilitators yeah. strongly because they yeah. burn out, even online. Yeah. Uh, with the dealing with the racism from already practicing health professionals, it's it's, it's a tough gig. And one of the ways I find students to accept, as I said, the emotional response is going to come. But can we accept that and work in this way where it's very real and engaging, but also underpin it with the hard evidence? So it can't be dismissed as just our touchy-feely spin on things. Yeah. Here's what the evidence says. Here's what the research says. Here's yes. What the research says. So I always try and work in two levels at once. One is to present the evidence to have it always backed up. Yes. But then to find the narrative that mm. makes it live and as human so people can grasp it on a different level as well. Mm. That's really inspiring. I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that into my tool belt for teaching. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... What's your favourite part of being a black academic? I think it's, you know, you described in the teaching aspect at the end of the semester or the end of the year when you see that people have changed. Mm-hmm. I think being some kind of a catalyst or co-conspirator in change at all levels. Uh, sometimes it's teaching. Sometimes it's university processes. Mm. Sometimes I think what you're doing and what our colleague Chelsea Bond does is being a a public, uh, a professional academic, you know, public professional mm. out there. Um, I think that's important, you know. We meet on Twitter from time to time, yeah. you know. Uh, I'm such a social media beginner, but it's su- surprisingly potent. Yeah. So I will use whatever means is, is necessary to take the, the research I know about and the good practice I've had the good fortune to come across from colleagues everywhere, here and overseas as well, and find some way to feed that back into public discourse, you know, whether it's through social media, through academic papers, sometimes it's just the right way to go, yeah. or through op-ed pieces or, you know, podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all real. And I know Chelsea has got radio shows. You know. Yeah, Wild Black Woman. If you, women, yeah. if you haven't listened to it yet, if you're listening yeah. in, you should look them up because they are hilarious and also yes. brilliant and challenging at the same time. So, And I think those two things don't have to fight each other, you know? Yeah. You, yeah. You, you know, we, we get by by our humour. 
Yeah. Uh, not, not showing away from it. So I'd, I'd use whatever is out there. I said as part of my essential academic role is not to sit somewhere in a, in a musty office, mm. but to engage in, a, in public discourse as much as the university life and processes. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate your engagement in these things. Um, I met you for the first time. I'm not sure if you remember, it was in Sydney at the Teaching While Black Symposium. Yes. Yeah. And I had the day before quit my academic job um, and was pretty set. Oh, I think I was just going to quit academia completely. I had completely burnt out in that first year. And, you know, I live in a regional area. So I had traveled. To, I'd already booked to travel to this Sydney event because it interested me. And then when I turned up and I heard a panel of people, including yourself, talking about the exact things that had left me feeling burnt out, I was then able to join the dots in terms of, oh, these are structural issues. These are, this is part of the system. It's not that I'm just not cut out to be in the space. It's that the space is hard and that's okay. Um, and that willingness from people like yourself and, and Professor Bond was there as well um, to be on panels and to share because there's a sense of bloodletting in that, you know, it's saying this is my personal story and this is things that yeah. are uncomfortable and and a lot of other people don't have to do that. That's not part of, you know, there's a lot, you could be a non-Indigenous academic in a lot of fields and never have to talk about personal experience if you didn't want to, whereas it kind of is part of the parcel for us. Um but for me, that was a key part as well as watching people like yourself on Twitter and going, oh, okay, um, these are structural issues, which means that if I read the work of black academics, I'll find some answers in how to cope with or how to address or how to push back. And it was that hook that, that just kept me in there. Uh, and then the next year I was like, oh, okay, actually I enjoy this. And, um, and listening to First Nations academic was what I was really missing because I just hadn't had that kind of connection. So I think that's why I do it well, now when I get offered opportunities to do things because um, I don't find it very uncomfortable. It piques my anxiety a lot and I do get the occasional death threat after I go on TV. Um, but overall, I think about the the connection and the way that we're kind of reaching across the continent um, as First Nations academics and, and maintaining community and, and feeding and uplifting. And I've benefited so greatly from that from people like yourself and and other senior black academics um so i love that and you know twitter i'm i'm a twitter addict um it's probably the closest thing i get to self-care is yana with people on twitter um and in the lead up to producing this podcast uh, i asked twitter what would they like to hear if i was to record yarns with black academics what do you want to know um and so i've got two questions for you prof that have come straight from Twitter. So at Alib88 asks, how do you see academic endeavour being of tangible benefit to our communities? I'll take you back to that idea of when you're uh, teaching, but also it applies to research as well. Things that we think we can see very clearly may not be clear to someone outside of our experience or our communities. And for that, we need evidence. Yeah. And so when that evidence is produced because as a black academic either leading the research or changing the teaching curriculum or pedagogy then we're shifting things we're helping people comprehend it first they have to apprehend it and actually take it on board before they can comprehend it and make some changes 
So there's a very real way in which academic endeavour is not just ivory tower, with people speaking this Martian language, which yeah. is, you know, obsolete and crazy. It actually <laughs> yeah. provides an evidence base <laughs> for change. Yeah. You know, as long as that second step's in there, the evidence is then presented in such a way that it can actually make some change happen. Mm. So I think it's, it is incredibly empowering, um, incredibly capable of change if you don't just, you know, do it for the laurels, for the for the the puffedness. If you actually can keep your humility yeah. Yeah. <laughs> about yourself as you go about your business, you know. And the good thing about working with, you know, as I said, I was in Canberra with this bunch of Indigenous PPCIs. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll stop. Like Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous and Deputy Vice Chancellor Indigenous. Uh, yep. The week before, I met some of the same people in Hobart. We're having some general meetings now. We're meeting together as a group to see how we can push things. And so I love that. Big, yeah, it's, 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 it's a powerful thing we can do, I think. There's a collective strength there. Yeah. If you've got too big for your boots in a gathering like that, they'd soon pull you down to size, just like you yeah. would. Yeah. That's a positive thing. You know? It yeah. means you can have your skill set, you can do things, but you know, keep your ego under control. Thanks very much. That's fantastic. The Because um, I have seen pictures of, of you all coming together, shared on social media, and I think I find that so reassuring because this idea of collective and community approaches, it means that things aren't lost, that you're not all, like, trying to reinvent a wheel that someone else might have already had success or failure with. I love that sharing of knowledge, that collective rather than competition Um that's beautiful and I think is so strong and yes. and just fantastic. I love knowing that because that then filters down to the experiences that we early career academics have because what you're all doing impacts our spaces. Um, so I love that. That's fantastic. Um, so our next question is at Elise or Alice R. Gabby asks, mm -hmm. What work do you value doing that may not currently be rewarded by your university? And how might universities change to value and reward such work? Well, I must confess, you sent me this question, so I had a bit of a thought about it, to think about <laughs> it. So it's not exactly um, riffing in real time, but um, I wanted to quite to give myself a challenge. What What is it that I value, but not necessarily has got to straight away by a university environment. What and they're smart people, but you know, you don't know what you don't know. What they mm. don't know really are universe sorry, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experiences from, from in from the inside and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge systems and knowledges which could enrich the academy. So on the experiences side, I think, you know, Universities Canada brought out a set of principles around how do you embed indigenous knowledge and experience in the academy in 2015 and one of the ways they said is a necessary condition for this to happen is to decolonize the university mm. and it sounds you know highly political and a bit you know just an easy phrase that tumbles out but one would be surprised i was at a previous university i won't name which and i mentioned before i was doing a workshop recently with the senior executive team of the university so yes. at this unnamed university i was doing a similar gig with some colleagues about a four-hour session with these people on creating a culturally safe university. One of my colleagues had some dot points up on a slide to introduce some aspects. One of those dot points used the word decolonization. 
And this particular vice chancellor leaned across to a colleague I heard later, good, good evidence for this, and asked the colleague and said, what's decolonization? Wow. So I guess what I'm saying is even with smart, successful people, we can't assume that their purview or their experience has ready them to hear what we're trying to say. You know, we need to find a way to get that, that rationale again through to them of why decolonizing. Because, you know, if you're swimming in one sort of water, that's the only kind of water there is. You know, I'm not expressing this very well. You know, culture and knowledge is the, is the air we breathe, the water we move through. And so the Western way is the way the universities operate. Mm. So well, that's great. I'm not here to say Western knowledge is bad. It's one form of knowledge. Yes. It's one set of knowledges. Yes. So can we introduce indigenous ways of understanding the world as well? This is a lovely concept, and I don't know, Yolnu people have taught us about, and I'm sure other cultures have got it, but they've named it beautifully. It's called Ganma. And so Ganma in Yolnu terms is the example of the fresh water coming down from the country, from land, that meets the incoming salt water, that point of contact where the two meet. And what happens is foam is created. And that foam is gamma. That's the new knowledge by the mixing of the two systems. But it's evanescent. It's not easily grasped. It's, you know, yeah. Uh, so it's a beautiful thing they've taught us, I think. And that's one of the things I'd like to do is to say in my role, it's not just me, others are doing exactly the same, but I see it as an important part of this work, but not at the moment fully understood by the academy, is if they can find a way to genuinely bring Indigenous knowledges, values and processes into the, the real main DNA of the university, yeah. there will be benefits there they don't even know about at the moment. Can I give you one quick example? Yes, please do. The tribe is really good in terms of the values that they see, see as important for the university. Again, I was at another university where values were sort of entrepreneurship and courage and, you know, mm -hmm. excellence and, okay, all very worthwhile things, but only very neoliberal in one sense. Yeah. But at the Trib, well, some of the things they value are innovation, connectedness and caring. Yeah. It's not a million miles away from Aboriginal values. No. Think about it. But talking about it in Aboriginal knowledge terms adds extra dimensions that might not have been there otherwise. You know, we all know about accountability. Accountability is not the same as stewardship, yeah. and reciprocity is not in there in the same way. So we can really add some stuff. And I was asked to go and talk to, and it's hilarious thing, every university is very corporate the way they press this mm -hmm. stuff. So this university, they have a bunch of people who are the cultural influencers. Their idea is to help the university embed these values. Fair enough. And I was asked to talk to these influencers. I thought, how do I approach this in some real way? And you may have come across you may not have come across a great article in Vanity Fair in the last 12 months about Murphys in Byron Bay. No. Now, this is no disrespect to the genuine, <laughs> genuine non-surfers of Byron Bay. Oh, okay. Right? The genuine non-surfers, which there are many, who just managed to juggle family and getting up there and cracking their words. Yeah. There's a particular group of those women who are influencers on Instagram. And the best, the best known of them has about 250,000 followers. And what they do is sell their lifestyle on Instagram. And so they're actually the brand of, 
oven they're using or the mm. children's clothes or whatever are all captured beautifully in these beautiful houses and their beautiful lifestyles and that's how they influence people. Right. So my pitch was to this group of the tribe saying, is that what influencing is about? Yeah. Because there's no authenticity there. No. It's still a particular end. So we talked a bit about what authentic influencing might be, Aboriginal way. And in a sense, I also borrowed on ancient Chinese ways of understanding things, Taoist ways, because there's a concept called Wu Wei. And Wu Wei just means doing without doing, mm. or action through inaction. Mm. That sounds crazy. What it means is not trying too hard, just being genuinely real, authentic, and present, which is Aboriginal ways such as deep listening, Dadiri, etc., Ngara. And then you will influence in ways you didn't even dream because people are hungry for that authenticity. But it's got to be real. It's got to be there you know, for them to see. Maybe that's a very strange way of describing it. But, you know, I've found that Aboriginal values and ways of working can add something to the way the university works in its values, its everyday processes. And we know when students see themselves in the processes of the university, as much as the curriculum, that helps them to stay. It helps to retain them. They're part of that institution. Mm. Actually, I, I, I think I, I think I'm on board with what you're saying, and it's <laughs> making me think about. So this this presentation that I'm I'm sharing next week. So it will have already been done by the time this streams. Um, it has a very provocative title, but it's going to feed in with the Murphy idea. So the title is Don't Make Me Play House Nigger, which is a quote from one of my participants, which where she talked about institutions, you know, we've collectively inherited this really messy institution that was built on the back of a white supremacist ideology. And there's a lot of cleaning to be done. And if you look at the work of First Nations people when they were basically slaves, so indentured servants, and if you consider what was held up as the ideal white womanhood was that you had this very clean house and your children were cared for, but hidden away in this room, you know, in worse conditions than the house dogs, were actually Aboriginal people who were doing that work. And what this participant talked about and then what I expand upon in this paper is the universities have these speech acts, which with your analogy of um, these influencer women and their houses are spotless and they're making it look like they have this carefree life. But what's going on behind the scenes? Do they have nannies? Do they have a trust fund? How are they affording Byron Bay properties? Who's cleaning their house? Who's, you know, washing their clothes? Because linen's not easy to keep clean. Otherwise, I would wear more of it, um, you know. And it's this idea of... Yeah, the universities want to brand themselves as inclusive and diverse. But my research in the existing literature shows that the 400 Indigenous academics, or even if you put it across the professional staff where you've got 1,200 of us, are the people who are picking up and doing that dirty work and being claimed in the grants but not getting the publications. And it's this idea of, well, hang on, are you being like I'm really running with this because I do love Instagram as much as I love Twitter. But, you know, are you being an Instagram influencer here as a university and presenting this clean sheen facade with your face, you know, as the, the, you know, your branding as the one who's achieved this? But is there actually a group of overworked, burnt out, fixed term contract Indigenous academics out the back who were being called on to do all the lectures and to do that work and it's stopping them from doing their own work and then that's not authentic? 
Yes. Um, yeah, you can tell I'm a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what you said is is absolutely spot on, and it connects with you know you said two questions that were asked of you. I'm going to talk about, but I noticed you've got another from Sally B. Gelly. Mm-hmm. Sally B. Gelly asks, "What constitutes good slash bad academic allyship?" Yeah, this goes to the heart of what you're talking about at the moment. I think because I can think of colleagues who step up and say, this is not just Blackfellow business, this is yes. everyone's business in yeah. a non-cliched way. Yes. And they're actually there for you. They actually yeah. say, you know, I will actually put myself on the line to get this stuff looked at. Yeah. So I can think of uh, uh, one particular ally I've had is I've talked with for about 10 years. And there's times when we've been team teaching, tag teaching, if you like. Yep. And it's got to a question of, say, stolen generations. Mm. <clears throat> and I've worked with uh, fellows who've been through Kinshaw Boys Home. I've yeah. had, you know, being a psychologist, I've had some particular experience of this area. And at times, it just gets to me, and I'm there trying to teach, and I'm emotionally losing it. Yeah. And my ally just steps in. Yeah. Steps in and takes over. Yeah. And gets me through that situation. You know? He accepts that it's part of his word. Yeah educate white fellows about their own ignorance in his terms, in his terms. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's wonderful when you when you see academic allies who step up and say, this is core business for us. Yeah. And we've got a job to do here. And I guess the good thing, we're working towards a wrap at uh, a trade. There hasn't been one here. And I took a bit of convincing because reconciliation is not you know, mm. uh, something mm. I jump onto is the be all and end all fixes. Yeah. It's a complex issue. Yeah. But a rap, I've rapidly come, rapidly come around to thinking, <laughs> but it's actually a great thing. Mm. And the reason is that it engages everybody and everybody across the university has to step up and be part of this agreement. So it's not just black fellow business. We're here in the capacity to lead this change, but it's everyone's responsibility. And so, yes, finding those allies who will step up when time is tough would be a good ally. The bad allies, or, or allies is not the right word for them, but I've found you will, one will get at a university as much as a government bureaucracy. Yeah. You, you, will, you will get people who are uh, gatekeepers. Yeah. And unfortunately, those gatekeepers are in senior positions at times. So mm-hmm. I think if I would say anything to a, an emerging black academic, I'd say... Sort out early on who's an ally and who's a gatekeeper. Yeah. Understand this person's gatekeeping behaviour, then you can strategize to get around it. Yeah. Great advice. Um, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Professor McDermott, for sharing your time and your wisdom here with us on Black Academia. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me. And good luck with the rest of the series. It's a great idea. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for on this week's episode of Blackademia. If you'd like to know more about Professor McDermott's work, then be sure to head to the website www.blackademia.com and don't forget to hit subscribe and follow on our social media channels and this streaming service. Tune in next week as I am with the deadly Carlyle into noon and we discuss astronomy, astrophysics and why sometimes part-time is the best time. Until next week, yalloo!